Our scripture today is 1 Samuel 17, 1 through 11, and then 32 through 51. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sukkah, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sukkah and, Az- and Azekah in Ephraim. And Saul the me- and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain of on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had a bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words from the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Verse 32. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff 
in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you should come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with a sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. The word of the Lord. This fall leading up to Advent, we're doing a sermon series on the life of David called After God's Own Heart. And of course, in the entire cycle and history of David's life, this story is the one that basically everyone knows. And it's really a masterful narrative. There's so much going on there. It's one, really one of the richest narrative incidents in all of Scripture. And, and so last week we were just in, in the chapter before this, First Samuel 16, and uh, Samuel anoints David to be the next king of Israel. And so really the rest of, of what First Samuel is about is about the rise of David and the decline of Saul. And our text this morning is so beloved because it taps into something that's, that's deep down in the human spirit. This is the ultimate underdog story. Most of our beloved cultural narratives are just variations of the story of David and Goliath. Star Wars, which I know Mike Nelson loves. So Star Wars um, uh, is, is about the David of the Rebel Alliance against the Goliath of the evil galactic empire. Another cultural touchstone is, is uh, Revenge of the Nerds, right? The, the David of the Tri-Lambs against the Goliath of the Alpha-Betas. 
Our own history is shaped by these tales. We think of our own history as a series of David and Goliath battles, right? The the David of the 13 colonies defeating the Goliath of the British Empire. The civil rights movement where, where David's like Rosa Parks stood against the Goliath of Jim Crow segregation. Right? We love a good David and Goliath story. Because we want to believe that the little guy has a chance. We want to believe that the entrenched powers who perpetuate injustice and violence and evil and corruption in this world can actually be defeated by the weak. We want to think that's possible. And this is a story, yes, about facing your giants. But it's also a story about weakness and strength. And it's a story that reveals how often we get the very definition of those terms wrong. That when it comes to weakness and strength, we're often looking for the wrong things. And we don't understand that what we see as strength is actually a sign of weakness, and that what we see as weakness can actually be a strength. And so that's what I want us to look at this morning. First, strength as weakness, and then second thing, just plain weakness. Then weakness as strength. And last, we're going to look at what true strength is. The greatest strength of all is. But before I get into all that, I just want to set the scene for what's happening in our scripture this morning. So we have two armies, the Philistines and the Israelites. They're facing one another in battle. The, the, the Philistines come from the coastal region, the coastal plain where they, they're based. And the Israelites are in the Judean hill country to the east. And so the Philistines are constantly making incursions, trying to expand their territory from the coast inland. And so the Israelites meet them in battle to stop them. And we have two armies camped. The Israelites on the north slope of one hill, or on the slope of a northern mountain, and the Philistines to the south. And they're facing one another with this this valley in between them. And each army sees the other, and and they know that if the battle is going to take place, it's got to be in this valley. Because to go down and try to charge up the other side would be a suicide mission, right? One of the great maxims of military history is whoever holds the higher ground is going to win. And so each side is kind of entrenched. They're, they've, they, they've, they've got their place. They're encamped. And so it's the question of when are they going to be able to draw the other one out to face them in this valley. But no one's attacking the other. And so Goliath takes to the field every day to engage in psychological warfare against the Israelites. And it's in the person of Goliath that we're going to see that what looks like strength is actually weakness. And one of the striking things about Goliath is is the level of description that he gets in the scriptural narrative here. Right? If you study the Bible, one thing that you'll come to notice is that it really isn't very interested in describing to us what people looked like. This is true in the Old and New Testament. You know, we, 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 we have four Gospels about Jesus, and we have no description at all of his appearance. We don't know what he looked like. Uh, we don't know if he was tall or short, or handsome or ugly, or if he had long hair or short hair. We just don't know, and, and, and the Bible is profoundly uninterested, it seems, in what people look like. It's more interested in, in, in the heart, in, in what people say and what people do, rather than how they appear. 
But Goliath is an exception that proves the rule. He gets this lengthy, detailed description in verses 4 through 10. And we learn a few things about Goliath. First and most famously, Goliath is tall, right? Six, six and a half cubits. And if you think of a cubit is like 18 inches, uh, that's over nine feet tall. Other textual variants suggest that it was maybe something more like six foot nine or seven feet tall. But in a world where your average adult male was, you know, maybe five feet, just over five feet tall, someone who's nine feet tall or seven feet tall is a giant. They're huge. And not only was he tall, but he was arrayed in armor. He had a helmet of bronze and a a coat of mail that weighed 5,000 shekels, 126 pounds. Again, speaking of your average adult male, that would have weighed more than your average adult male of that time. He's huge. He's got bronze shin guards, a bronze sword, a spear like a fence rail whose tip weighed more than 15 pounds. Pounds. And to top it all off, he, he had a shield bearer to walk in front of him and presumably to protect him from projectiles. Goliath was armed to the teeth with the best of modern weapons technology. So he's really tall. He's really well armed. And the last thing that we learn about Goliath is that he is really good at talking trash. Every day, 40 days, 40 nights, he goes out into the valley and he shouts his taunts and his insults at the Israelites. He says, send me a man who can do battle with me. He says, there's no reason to drag this this battle out, right? You you send out your champion to face me and whoever wins, the, 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 the winner gets to basically take possession of the loser and the loser will surrender themselves to the winners. So he's really good at talking trash. And another striking thing that, that, that we can miss from this story as we read it is that actually the name of Goliath is used very sparingly. He's just called the Philistine most of the time. He's the, the, the Philistine because he is, he's fighting as a representative of his entire people. He embodies the entire Philistine army in his person. So Goliath is super tall, he's super well-armed, he's a a total trash talker, he represents his people. He is, in the eyes of everyone there, the epitome of strength. Which actually makes him incredibly weak, because the thing is, contrary to appearances, giants have weaknesses. I think there's two especially that we see right here in this passage. And the first is the tendency uh, of giants to rely solely upon their own resources, right? Goliath doesn't need anyone's help to accomplish what he has set out to do. And so his strength is a source of severe idolatry. Giants trust in their own strength more than they would ever trust in someone like God. And when you're strong, who needs God anyway, right? He's a hypothesis that one can do without. I think that's a a propensity in the secular West as well. In in weird countries like our own, that's an acronym, uh, Western, educated, industrialized, uh, rich, and democratic. So weird societies like our own, we're the giants of history. We are the wealthiest, healthiest, largest, longest living, most technologically advanced and militarily powerful societies the world has ever known. 
We're also the parts of the world uh, most likely to not believe in God, where religious practice is in decline. Uh, and Western Europe has, has been this for a long time. And the United States used to be an example against the secularization thesis, that when you get weird, you get less religious. But increasingly, even in the United States, it used to be this great outlier. Uh, but particularly, we see this amongst you know, educated white urban elites, so kind of like people who live in this neighborhood. We're giants. We're the giants of history. And I think this correlation is not incidental. We've become like gods. We're giants like Goliath. And so who needs anything else? We've got everything we need to fight our battles, to be successful, to accomplish what we set our minds to. See, giants lose their sense of dependency and their understanding of the fragility of existence. And the other weakness that comes from being a giant is that the giant's strength blinds them to potential vulnerabilities. And because Goliath was a giant, the only thing he thought about was fighting another giant. He never considered what might make him vulnerable, what a non-giant might do to defeat him. And in the ancient world, there were three parts of an, of an army, kind of like rock, paper, scissors. So you had three parts of an army. You had the cavalry, mounted warriors who, who could move with terrifying speed on horseback. You had infantrymen, the, the foot soldiers, who, who uh, could move with great strength if they had you know, kept ranks and their columns and, and, and numbers. And, and then you had the projectile fighters, people who shot arrows or slung Stones, And they had the advantage of being able to repel their foes from a great distance. And so it's like paper, scissors, rock. So we all know that paper beats rock. Scissors beats paper. And uh, rock beats scissors. And it's a delicate balance between the three. And, And in the ancient world, the cavalry could beat projectiles. They were too fast, couldn't be hit. The infantry would beat cavalry because they could just dig in and put a stake up in the ground. And then you don't want your horse charging into that. And the projectiles beat infantry. And so none of these forces were invincible. Each had their own strengths and their own vulnerabilities that they brought to the battlefield. And what kind of soldier is Goliath? He is the infantryman par excellence. Right? He was armed and experienced for hand-to-hand combat where no one could hold a candle to him. In that realm, he was invincible because no one could match his size and his strength. But because he was so strong in this realm, he never thought to ask, well, what might happen if I'm not facing another infantryman? Because he's a giant that doesn't cross his mind. He doesn't even consider that he might face another kind of enemy. The weakness of being so strong is that it blinds him to his own weaknesses, his own vulnerabilities. We see the weakness of strength, you know, in business all the time, where a one-time dominant player in a market is taken down by a David because their size as a Goliath blinds them. One example that comes to mind from one of my favorite films that I've showed here in church was When God Left the Building. Uh, uh, uh. But it, they use the example of Eastman Kodak, right, as this giant, employed thousands of people in upstate New York, and they even invented the digital camera in the 1970s. 
But because they were a giant and they were doing so well with what they did, they couldn't understand how some David might come in and defeat them. They were too big to understand how they might fail. That's the great weakness of being a giant. All right, to summarize, the greatest weakness of a giant's strength is that it leads to pride. Pride that blinds giants to seeing their fault, their flaws, their vulnerabilities, and their weaknesses. So that's the weakness of strength. But, but we also see in this passage just plain weakness, which is exemplified by the second feature character of our passage, Saul. In stark contrast to the rich description that Goliath gets, when, when we get to Saul and the Israelites in verse 11, we only get this description, this terse description. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Not exactly a profile in courage. But here's the thing about Saul. Goliath comes out to the field and he says, send me your champion. Well, Saul is the Israelites champion. When we meet him in the book of 1 Samuel, there's a couple of things that it says about him. One was that he was really good looking and the other that he was really tall. That, that he was a whole head above the other Israelites. So let's say Goliath is maybe six foot nine. You know, Saul's in the ballpark when it comes to that. And, and, and we hear about Goliath having this incredible, you know, array of armor. Well, when David comes to say, I'll fight this battle for you, we see that Saul has a whole set of armor too. But he refuses to fight. And this is where we see real weakness. Not that Saul is afraid. Fear is not weakness. Do not hear me saying that. We all got stuff that scares us. And Goliath is certainly someone to be feared. See, weakness comes from from fearing the wrong things the most, right? And trusting in the wrong things. So fearing the wrong things and trusting the wrong things. That's where weakness comes from. And Saul's greatest fear is Goliath. He fears Goliath more than he fears disappointing his God or the troops who he is leading. He fears the wrong thing. And his trust is predicated on him having the equipment and the size he needs to match Goliath in battle. His greatest source of weakness is in not trusting that God has provided him already with everything he needs to face this giant. And that's a great source of weakness for us as well. Not trusting God that he has provided us already with everything we need to be faithful in his service. Right? The, the, the churches can fall into this all the time. God, you know, we could really be doing a lot of stuff if we just, like, had a parking lot. That would be, man, think how much we could do. If we had an elevator, we'd be killing it. We'd be, we'd be, we'd be crushing it. Uh, 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 you know, if we had a little more money... A couple more staff people. Man, Goliath, watch out. We're coming. And as individual Christians, you know, we might think, okay, God, all I need, if I I had a little more time, a different job, maybe a different relationship, a different book I could read, different friends, maybe a more exciting congregation, a little better preaching. Uh, 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 If I had that, I, I might be able to do this. I might be able to pull this off. Right? If the sin of giants is pride, the sin of cowards is despair. 
They're both bad. But here's the scariest truth of all that it's so difficult to actually embrace, that God has already given us everything we need, all the equipment, all the experience, all the theological resources we might ever need to be faithful, to fight the battle. That's what David sees that Saul and the Israelites don't, and that leads to the third thing I want to talk about, weakness as strength. And it's because David is weak and small that he actually has an advantage against the giant. He tries on Saul's armor, and he has the courage to admit that it doesn't fit, that it's not going to work. It's too big. He says, I can't go with these. I haven't tested them. And so the text says, and this is where we see a real profile in courage. So David put them off. He took it off. That's real strength knowing when not to rely on false strength, when to take off false cover and go into battle with what you know and what you've already got, to trust that. And because David recognizes he's not strong, he gains the advantage against Goliath. If he had tried to go hand-to-hand against Goliath to fight him, you know, mano a mano, infantrymen to infantrymen, he would have been slaughtered in an instant. One blow from that sword, David's done. But because David fought, not as an infantryman, but he said, what do I know? Oh, I got to sling some stones. I'm a projectile warrior. Because he did that, he actually had the advantage against Goliath. It's like in Indiana Jones where that guy comes out with the swords and he's doing all that fancy sword play in front of Indy. And you think if Indy has to fight this guy in a sword battle, (laughs) this guy knows what he's doing. But then Indy just pulls out the gun and shoots him. And that's really what David is able to do to Goliath. Embracing his weakness is what gives David strength. David's true strength comes from his understanding that, that, that he doesn't fight alone and that actually God has already provided him with everything he needs and he's prepared him in each and every way for this fight. In fact, what, it's remarkable that David is the first person in the entire story to mention God at all. He's the first person to theologize about this situation. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? It's as if if everyone else has forgotten that God wasn't just a memory or an idea or a theory, but a living and active God present in this situation. And this God has already prepared David for this battle when when he was watching over the sheep and and a predator would prey upon his flock. God was preparing David for this very battle. And David's strength comes not from looking what he doesn't have, but what God has already provided him with, the experience he has. Has prepared him for this moment. David says in verse 37, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And the word for paw and hand, they're the same word. So it's just that the Lord who has delivered him from the hand of the lion and the hand of the bear will deliver him from another hand. The hand of this Philistine. It's all just hands. Real strength comes when we stop comparing ourselves to our giants. And we start comparing our giants to God. That's where real strength comes from. 
And in verse 45, David points us to real strength, which is the last thing that we're going to look at this morning. He says, you come to me, to Goliath, he says, you come to me with sword and with spear and with javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. David can, can talk trash too. And I love what one commentator says about this. He says, ultimately, David's trust is not in the technology of force, but in the subversive power of truth. Truth about the source of real strength. God. David's battle against Goliath, it points us to an even greater battle that's already been won on our behalf. Look at David's story. He's a savior, right? He comes to God's people and delivers them from the Philistines. He fights their giant as, as his people's representative in one-on-one combat, this one-on-one challenge. Each warrior represents the entirety of their people. That's why whoever wins, the, the losers will serve them. And David stands up as Israel's savior and as her representative. And he wins through weakness with no sword or armor. And his ultimate trust isn't in might or power, but in the name of the Lord. And this story prepares us for the story of great David's greater son. Right? Jesus, whose very name means Savior. Who came to deliver God's people and the whole world from the giant and even greater Goliath called sin. And he fought this battle as our representative. Right? He completely stands in our place so that his victory is our victory. And what's true of him is true of us. What happened to him happened to us. His death on the cross and his resurrection to new life. And Jesus wins through weakness. He says that those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And though Jesus could call down a a legion of angels from the hosts of heaven, he doesn't. His strength is shown in weakness, in the agony of the garden of Gethsemane and the darkness of the cross. Friends, what David and Jesus teach is that if we want to stand firm in the battle, we don't need to deny or flee from our weakness. We can actually paradoxically lean into them. Real strength comes from fearing the right things and trusting the right things. Fearing God more than we fear anyone or anything else. Trusting not in our own strength or craftiness or resourcefulness, but in the strength of the God who has given us already everything we need to stand firm in the battle and win. Because he's already won the victory on our behalf. And compared to our God, everything else is a minnow. I close with these words of David. The Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord, and he will give you into our hand. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me.